Lord, we are reminded of Jeremiah's prophecy when he says that he that hath the word is to speak it in truth. So, Lord, give us ears to hear your truth this morning. Might this proclamation from the pulpit be clear that you would give us a readiness of ear and heart for you to speak to your church through your inscripturated revelation, the Word of God, which is inspired by you. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. It is authoritative over our lives, and we simply submit to it. Lord, we know that your uh, judgment is against the false prophets, those that do not speak your Word. But as we sit under your Word, might this Word be like a fire and a hammer which shatters a rock, that it would penetrate any stoniness, any callousness in our heart, and to draw us into conformity to it. Well, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Spirit's ministry to us as he tutors us in your truth and convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Make us doers of this Word this day. For the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen. I don't know if any of you have ever in a high school play had a part of The Emperor's New Clothes or watched it. The Emperor's New Clothes is a short tale by Hans Christian Andersen about two weavers who promise an emperor a new suit of clothes and that it's invisible to those who are unfit for their positions, stupid or incompetent. No one dared say that he doesn't see any suit of clothes on this emperor until this child blurts out, he isn't wearing anything at all. And that shocking tale has been translated into over a hundred different languages over the years. It was first published with The Little Mermaid in Copenhagen, April 7, 1837, as the third and final installment of Anderson's fairy tales told to children. If you have not seen it or, or read it, uh, you've got a vain emperor who cares about nothing except wearing and displaying clothes. He hires two swindlers who promise him the finest, best suit of clothes from a fabric that, as I said, is invisible to everybody. And if anybody is unfit for his position, it, uh, they are hopelessly stupid. Townsfolk play along with the pretense not wanting to appear unfit for their positions or by the emperor as stupid. The emperor cringes, suspects the assertion is true, but continues in this charade, charade, however it's pronounced. Anderson's manuscript was about to go to the printers when suddenly he was inspired to change the original climax where this kid blurts out he doesn't have anything on at all. Most scholars agree that uh, this came as a result of times that he would be in Copenhagen and uh, as the Danish bourgeoisie would look upon natively precocious children uh, who are not admitted to the cultured adulthood. And so they suggest that this 
emperor's new clothes became his expose of the hypocrisy and the snobbery he found there when he finally gained admission to the cultured adulthood. In uh, recounts of his uh, biography, he uh, recalls standing in a crowd and his mother waiting to see King Frederick VI when the king made his appearance. Anderson cried out, Oh, he's nothing more than a human being. And his mother tried to silence him by crying, Have you gone mad, child? Trying to shush her child. For whatever reason, there was that change in uh, what he had written that would prove most satirical towards the end. And so, you understand the plot. You understand that how even in our day and age, 2015, the phrase, emperor's new clothes, has become an idiom about logical fallacies, a story made to be explained by pluralistic ignorance. If you were to find yourself in the crowd that is supposed to be addressed in this story, you'd be thinking no one believes, but everyone believes that everyone else believes. And who am I to open my mouth and prove that I don't know anything at all? Everyone's ignorant to whether the emperor has clothes on or not, but believes everyone else is ignorant. Can I submit to you, dear congregation, that with liberals and the religious historical critics, higher critics, they suggest in the same plot, emperor has no clothes. For we spend week after week in the gospel of Matthew or any of the other, other gospel accounts, and we actually sit under submission that this is actually the real historical Jesus, and we need not be on the hopeless search for the historical Jesus. That we ignorant folk who gather in church houses every week actually believe what is written on the pages of Scripture, that Jesus literally was the very Son of God, was 100% man at the same time that He was 100% God, not forsaking either His humanity or His deity, that Jesus Christ, in fact, was, he, was who He claimed to be. The Messiah, the sent one of God, the one who came and lived a perfect life underneath the Father's law that we could not keep and died the only death, a substitute for sinners such as us and rose triumphantly over the grave. If you would join me in John's second epistle, the second epistle of John he teaches us about promoting truth in the body, in the fellowship, and how to demonstrate true biblical love. Truth in love. Not some sappy emotionalism or ecumenical hug. Many epistles in the New Testament, like, uh, like Second Peter that we spent weeks studying through, warn of false heresies out there, that we've got to somehow reinvent Jesus, reinvent the truth, that we would be so audacious to say to those that were present to us 
any of man-made ideologies apart from Scripture that the emperor has no clothes. It's a fallacy. We believe what is written therein, what is shown on the pages of Scripture without error. So John comes to the church through a letter he writes to an individual and teaches us foundational principles about Christian hospitality that will help us balance a life and a ministry of truth in love. Truth in love. If you would join me here, Second John, Lord willing, we will get through the half a dozen, first half a dozen verses of this little letter. John records the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. For the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. As we look at, begin looking at foundational principles on Christian hospitality that teaches us the balance between truth and love, let me invite you to kind of partition these first half a dozen verses out into, three, into two points. We'll see the basis of Christian hospitality in verses 1 through 3, and the behavior of Christian hospitality verses 4 through 6. Let's consider, first of all, what comes from John as, he, as we move through the author and the addressees of this letter and his affection for them. And, and, and through these, uh, yes, I'm alliterating to try to give us a mnemonic device to think through and to hang the truth of the basis for why Christians are hospitable, though they are truth-tellers. So we'll consider, first of all, the author, the addressees, and the affection. And you know, as, as, we begin, as he begins the letter, this salutation, he begins... Uh, First John in the uh, second John uh, in a similar vein to to third John the next letter. Um, first, second, and third John are letters that the apostle John wrote. Second and third bear the closest representation to Greco-Roman letters of the day. They're the shortest epistles in the New Testament, and thus the title of today's sermon and next week's as well. Uh, the postcard epistle on truth and love. It's short. Both second and third John are less than 300 Greek words. They could easily fit on a single papyrus, half a page in many of our English Bibles. Second John's the shortest, only 245 words. And the reason why we move slowly to make sure we don't miss anything in this salutation is that a salutation anywhere in the New Testament is part of the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of God 
that we're too quick to glance over and move on too quickly. But it's not insignificant. It often establishes the mood of, of one of the New Testament letters and previews the main themes in seed form, and uh, this is no different. The simplicity of structure is easy to see throughout this second epistle. In verses 1 through 3, it's just a standard greeting. Uh, You've got the writer and the recipients, and it's followed by several verses, uh, verses 4 through 11 of instruction, both in what we should strive for as the beloved and what we should shun and stay away from, stay clear of. We're to abide in God's commands. Don't abide with false teachers, though. Practice the truth, but make sure you also protect the truth. And then this little conclusion in verses 12 through 13. This morning, we're going to get just a brief little background on the greeting, which will establish the foundation for the instructions on hospitality, which we will barely get into today. It'll be established by clear apostolic exhortation in the verses to come. So notice, first of all, the author. If you want to jot that down in your notes, the author is John, the elder. The elder. Elder in Scripture often conveying advanced age, those that would apply to John here around 90 to 95 A.D., soon after he wrote his first epistle during his ministry at Ephesus in the latter part of his life. Uh, That term, elder, would uh, speak of what would take place in, in, in Jewish climate and culture. They'd be at the city gates. The older and seemingly w- uh, wiser ones of, of the, uh, the city would be there at the city gates. It would refer to somebody in advanced age, and it was a, a great title to take as the church was, was being built and established on the foundation of the apostles for those that God would raise up in spiritual oversight and shepherding the local congregation. So this term also kind of speaks of authority and status. John doesn't uh, refer to himself here as apostle. We don't necessarily know why he calls himself here the elder, because all the New Testament speaks of a plurality of eldership. This is a unique occurrence. I'm not going to exercise any sanctified speculation as to why he does it. I don't know uh, why he calls himself the elder. Uh, It's unique, the only time in the New Testament. He is the last apostle. But in the Christian community, it would speak of one who possessed leadership by virtue of his character. When we're looking at church leadership and those that God would have to oversee the local congregation and shepherd them in the truth and confront error, God uses men of character, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, people of integrity and moral standing. And so John, though an apostle who had the right to command, identifies himself as the elder. You notice the addressee or addressees. He writes to the chosen lady and her children. This introduces no small discussion among commentators and exegetes. You must admit, when you first read this, okay, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, we are, uh, many of you who gather here are believers, uh, part of the, the uh, body of Christ and the local membership here in the church, and on your first reading, 
you might think, well, many, many books of the Bible derive their name based on the author. You know, Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah, Isaiah. We don't have to speculate if Isaiah wrote Isaiah or if Moses wrote the Pentateuch or anything like that. Many books of the Bible derive their name based on the author. Or sometimes a biblical book takes on uh, where, wherever it was being sent. Whether we're addressing the church at Ephesus, a.k.a. Ephesians, or if Galatians was a circular letter to the northern regions around Galatia, or Colossians written to those at, you guessed it, Colossae. So what about 2 John, written by the elder to the chosen lady and her children? Majority opinion is to interpret this metaphorically of a sister church somewhere, and the membership is her children. They say the text reads naturally if the church is being addressed here. After all, you don't have to study much Scripture. If you wanted to reflect in Ephesians 5, when the Apostle Paul addresses the Ephesians at Ephesus, in chapter 5, in verse 22, he says that wives are to picture in their submission to their husbands the church's submission to Christ. The husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church. Christ loved the church, and Paul specifies that Christ gave himself up for who? Her. Sanctify her, cleansed her, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory. And as uh, we read from Revelation in our call to worship this morning, you read about the bride of the Lamb in Revelation 21.9. We're told in 2 Corinthians 11.2, the Corinthian church is betrothed as a bride to her husband. And though the preacher before you this morning is a dispensationalist that separates Israel and the church, the two entities in Scripture... We're told that Israel was the virgin daughter of Zion, Isaiah 52, 2 and 47, 1 and following, Ezekiel 16, 7. A well-known commentator who I sat through his class just two years ago, the Winterham out at Masters, uh, Dr. Yarbrough, Yarbrough in his uh, uh, John, John's Epistles commentary, uh, says how this is a chosen congregation and the children of church members. Others mention the personification of the church going way back to the early church, Father Clement. Uh, some speculate that because the term for chosen, uh, elect in other words, that maybe her name was Electa, if it was an individual. May I suggest that there are good men on both sides of the argument. We cannot always come to a clear understanding as to whether or not to sway one way or the other. Since there are good men on both sides with convincing exegetical arguments from the text, like those I already read for you, John is writing to a lady. In the same vein that in his third epistle, he writes to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, 3 John 1.1. 1, 1. Though I see convincing argument in the text, I'm not driven to depart from 
the normal, plain sense of the passage. Why would I take this as the church if John doesn't make clear for me that this is the church? If he's writing to the chosen lady and her children, we have to take it as the chosen lady and her children. If we're to understand this as a real lady, then down in verse number 13, the children of your chosen sister greet you. These are real children greeting you. Not another congregation sending their regards to another congregation. When you look for church language, what's going to clue me in that this is the church? There isn't any ecclesiastical lingo except for that little phrase, one another. One another. And when we see in verse number 10, if anyone comes to you, here's in the instruction section, and he's telling lady and her kids, if anyone comes to you, madam, and doesn't bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. At your church. And don't give him a greeting. That's exactly what he's talking about. Hospitality in the home. Again, think of the culture. Read this through your Jewish spectacles. We'll refer to this again next week. When you had prophets who were sent to your town to speak forth God's truth, you got itinerant teachers, you're responsible to exercise Christian charity and care for them. Don't make them stay in the inn, that's no better than a brothel. Not a great place for somebody that brings the truth of God in all purity to stay. House them, take care of them, attend to their needs. Those inns were places of ill repute. We see John the Elder writing to the chosen lady and her children, instructing them specifically as to what truth and love looks like in life and ministry. You see the author, the addressees, what about his affection? His affection. John writes to the one he loves in the truth about how that truth is promoted in love. What a balance. There is no better picture in all of Scripture if we're tripped up, either emphasizing love, 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 or truth, truth, truth. Visit with John. Be schooled at his feet as he writes to the cause. Because any church in the history of the church that has neglected Second John has done so to their shame and to great harm as no letter more beautifully balances those twin graces of truth and love. Let's learn from him how to hold high the truth of God while exercising it in love and informing each other. Paul admonishes the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.15. Speak the truth in what? Love. It's not one extreme or the other. We love the pendulum to go to one extreme or the other. John's concerned for the church corporately, but he individually and in a very real relational way unfolds how, what life on life looks like for her and her children in the context of relationship. So as a good elder, John's heart is knit to theirs. 
It's not a mere sentimental or emotionalism. Truth is the framework. In the absence of truth, love is not present. Both are essential, neither are optional. And this truth is embodied in the very person of Jesus Christ and resident in His Holy Spirit, which we'll discuss more next week. Thus, yes, I had the wrong opening illustration for this week instead of next week on the uh, emperor's clothes. But you notice how he writes. And could I bring to the surface, since we only have one Greek in residence here at the church, he says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. I is in the emphatic position. Love is in the present tense. Whom I myself, it's bold-faced, it's underlined, underscored here. There's a real deep affection taking place. I myself love is a constant expression of my own heart. What compelled his love was the truth. And what compelled him to address her as in scripturated revelation by us, to us as well, what, what uh, got him to extend greetings and give a foundational reminder is that it's about the truth. You could even put it this way. John, the apostle, John the elder, is answering Pilate's question way back in the gospel of John. Truth? What is truth? What's it look like? How does it act? Truth is a propositional, objective reality. It's been inscripturated in the pages of the Bible. The pages of Scripture that define who God is. How can you get to know Him? How can you render obedience that He requires? What's out of bounds for those who are worshipers of Him? What does it look like to pursue His glory in life? We find it in Scripture. In the truth. Anyone who loves this truth is like John, who was affectionate towards this chosen lady and her children, wanted them to know what truth, how truth is fleshed out in love. He says, Your obligation is to help them on their way. Be hospitable. Help them come to the truth. That they're either in the domain of Satan with his lies or they're part of God's kingdom with his agenda and truth. And since she was a lover of truth, John loved her and her children and all who would follow after them. He writes to them who know the truth and by application as we read Scripture that is not to us but for us, It's about the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Part of the abiding in truth is recognizing error, which we'll look at next week. Recognizing error. Which maybe this gal had unwittingly aided and embedded the enemy as she was offering hospitality to false teachers. John says that's off the list. That's out of bounds. Time out. John in his epistles warns of impending false teaching and the rise even of, of Gnostic thought that threatened the church and individual believers. Look at verse 7. He says, many deceivers have gone out. We send out missionaries to present the truth to those that don't know the truth. 
Don't be foolish and think that the devil doesn't do the same thing. He is very involved in missionary enterprise from the beginning. Back in his first epistle, John records in 1 John 2, in verse number 18, children, it's the last hour, just as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Look around us. Turn on quote-unquote Christian radio or go to a quote-unquote Christian bookstore. Error runs rampant with the truth. It's all around us. John says, beware of Antichrist coming because many Antichrists are here. Verse 19 of 1 John 2. He says, many will go out from us. Don't be shocked when people apostatize and leave the faith. People who sing the same hymns with us and study the same Bible with us will leave. They'll turn their backs on Christ and His truth. They went out from us. They weren't of us. They'd been of us. They would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not, they all are not of us. Verse 22 of 1 John 2. Who's the liar but the one who denies that Jesus... You see what's going on? People are coming to town in this day when Scripture is being written. They're denying Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one of the Father. This is the Antichrist, John says, the one who denies the Father and the Son. You cannot be right about God if you're wrong about Jesus. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4 of 1 John. John, again, writing with this affection for the people of God, with the truth of God, says, Beloved, don't believe everything. Don't fall for everything. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're of God. Because many false prophets, they've gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you've heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Beloved, develop discernment. The only way you know the false is by knowing the truth. Dig into it, study like it like never before. If you're convicted that Scripture is true, that prophesies even of its day, error, that'll drive you into a study of Scripture. You cannot abide in the truth and support error. Going back to 2 John again, he says, Madam, you know, this, this chosen elect lady, 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you, doesn't bring this teaching, don't receive him in your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. You go to church on vacation, and you think, hey, this is a great place to live. And you sit underneath error, and you choose to move there, and you don't open your mouth. You're aiding and embedding the enemy. he, He tells the elect lady, if you help the enemy, you're as guilty as preaching his false gospel. Don't participate. Don't have any part. Hands off. Abide in the truth. Don't support error. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans, 
What does body life in the local fellowship, the local church look like? Romans 12, verse 13, he says, be devoted to, uh, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, practicing hospitality. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 2 says, if, if you're one of the saints of God, you better make sure that you're uh, practicing hospitality because you might have entertained angels unawares. Engage in hospitality, but not hospitality to those prone to error. In uh, Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter 4.9, here's the command, be hospitable to one another without complaint. <laughs> Doesn't that help us? I'm too tired. I don't have the time. Whatever excuse we want to make to why we're not hospitable. Uh, be hospitable without complaint. Divine imperative. The enemy is as engaged as God in promoting what his error as we are God's truth. They're seeking to make converts, so don't inadvertently or unwisely show false prophets hospitality. No middle ground, no wiggle room. Be the one child in the audience that speaks up and says, ah, but sir, the emperor has no clothes. Something's wrong. Even if people frown upon it and slander your name for being one of those Bible toters. God blesses His Word in each life that is found in conformity to it. So the background, this greeting, this salutation, sets the momentum for this little epistle. The elder, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, not only I, but all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's the background. How about the behavior? Verses 4 through 6. The behavior of Christian hospitality. John in uh, his epistles gets back to the basics. Foundational principles. Some have dubbed John as the apostle of black and white. Either you're this or you're that. You look at 1 John. Either you love or you hate. There's no middle ground. Either you're of the Father or you're not. You're, in, you're not in the light, you're in the darkness. Gives the basics of Christianity. Simply stated here in verses 4, 5, and 6, adhere to the truth, adhere to love, adhere to obedience. Walk in truth, Walk in love, walk in obedience. Notice verse 4. It says, I was very glad. Here's what made John's day. Very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth. Again, no sanctified speculation. When he says some walking in the truth, he's not saying a bunch of people weren't. Doesn't say that. But what made his day was as he was being introduced to people after people. Wow, there's people who are testifying. These people are truth tellers. Those that walk in the truth. And he accentuates the need for truth by repeating the term five times in just these opening four verses. And rather than thinking that truth is an abstract concept, which is right, truth is truth, it's doctrine, it's, it's reality as God states it. it, certainly has its doctrinal aspect. But is John being suggest, 
suggestive of a bit more here when he's talking about the truth. As he says that this truth resides in us and with us forever, suggesting more than doctrine. Close parallel. Put your finger there. Go back to his, his gospel. His gospel account and gospel of John. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, where Jesus is promising His disciples the Spirit, the paraclete, would be with them forever. He says that He remains with you and will be in you. So maybe here, John reflecting back on what he had already written and recorded from Jesus' lips, This truth that would be in you and with you forever. A manifestation of the Spirit of truth. The idea even of influence. Not just knowing the truth, but that it's reflective in our lives. Nobody has to scratch their head and wonder what you believe. They see you live. They know what you believe. The truth needs to be impacting our decisions. A strong awareness and a sway in each decision of life. No afterthought, but actively involved in walking the truth. What we believe and how we live. Doctrine and duty are inextricably linked together. Conduct and creed. The old Baptist preacher Vance Havner would say, We live is what we believe. Excuse me. What we live is what we believe. Everything else is just religious talk. So, beloved, don't be guilty of just a bunch of religious talk where you've got all the trivia facts and you can win the best argument. True Christians who hold fast to apostolic Christianity, we need to be those who stand against our opponents and those who challenge orthodoxy, who want us to monkey with the message, who challenge orthodoxy. Part of the Spirit's anointing in John's first epistle. 1 John 2.27 We're told that uh, if, if you're in Christ, you have this anointing which you receive from Him that abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. John is not contradicting the Apostle Paul. He's not saying that God hasn't gifted His church with teaching, teachers and gifted ones. He's not what he's saying here, but you have no need of teaching. You've got a resident teacher in your life. Part of the Spirit's ministry as you study truth and hear truth as he bears witness to that truth in your life. And even if you can't put your finger on what the error is, the alarm system goes off and you say, something's wrong, something's not right here. Walk in love. Excuse me, walk in truth. It's what brought joy to the apostle's heart, walking in truth. Notice verse 5, walking in love. Lady, I'm not giving you a new command. No new information here. But the one which you've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This one another is the only... Uh, if we were to use the church body metaphor in Scripture, this is, the, this is part of the one another language of the New Testament for what Christianity is to look like in the church. This is the only church language in the epistle. 
Though he writes to this elect woman, she carries out in the context of the fellowship of believers. And if we're walking, uh, pun intended, if we're walking from verse 4 into verse 5, verse 4 emphasizing truth and verse 5 emphasizing love, we cannot say, well, I'm just being loving if you're abandoning the truth. Hospitality must be discriminating. It is not unloving to call an ace an ace, a spade a spade, and sin, sin. The most loving thing we can do to our loved ones and friends who are lost in error, the most loving thing we can do to our neighbors and is point them to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only access to the Father. That is the only loving thing that we can do. Love walks in truth. Many things that we call love are not love at all. For instance, as we're studying Proverbs in adult Sunday school and one of our family devotions this week, Solomon dared say that if I don't discipline my children, I don't love my children. Fact of the matter. Many things that we call love is not love. Believer, what unites and binds us together as the church is that we carry the same message. We have the same mission. Our common interest in the truth. We're not united around our diversity or everyone doing their own thing. You know, so there's this individuality that people want to keep on pressing towards. You know, you can have your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own truth. God's established it. And it's not open to any private interpretation. We must concern ourselves not with individual interpretation, but what is God's interpretation of His Word? What does God mean by what He said? We share love within the confines of truth. We're not called by God to universal acceptance of all who claim Jesus. But those manifesting obedience and religious affections that manifest that there must be a work of regeneration in their lives because they wouldn't hate their sin and love Christ. These are unnatural to them. God must be doing a work in them. John writes to this lady. He said, I'm not giving you anything new. Practice what you've learned, been taught about the truth. It's nothing new. Back in his first epistle about this love principle being nothing new. He said in 1 John 2 and verse 7, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you. Yeah, nothing new under the sun, right? Yeah, and Peter constantly was stirring up people's remembrance. But he says, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Go down to verse 24, 1 John 2, 24. Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you'll also abide in the Son and in the Father. Is there a love for God? Is there a love for the brethren? If you don't love either, the love of the Father is not in you, John says. He says in the third chapter of that epistle, in verse 10, this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. A reminder to practice the truth that we know. Nothing new here. 
Maybe here John even has a specific time in mind. As in the beginning of Christian faith embodied in Jesus. Remember what Jesus was doing the night in which He was betrayed? John chapter 13. When He's in the upper room about to be betrayed, He admonishes disciples and He says, a new commandment I give, which is not new. It's an old commandment. Love one another. There are always parameters. Always clarifications and qualifiers. Walking in love, you need to be walking in truth. So we must be focused on those who are adhering to fundamentals of the faith. Otherwise, we aid those attempting to destroy the truth. Sound doctrine is the test of fellowship and the basis for separation between those who profess Christ and those who are Christians. What what Paul say to the Galatians? He says, if somebody comes and does not preach the same gospel, let him be anathema. Let him be a curse. Let him be damned. That's not filled with all the emotion and and malice that uh, people would attribute it to. It's love to tell the truth. Paul said to Titus, if a person's factious, reject him. They're not in accord with walking in the truth, so walk in the love. Thirdly, so we're concerned about the truth, verse 4, concerned about love, verse 5. Notice verse 6, are we walking in obedience? This is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. So here's the command. The message that we listen up for, that we turn our hearing aids on for. He uses the term three times in this passage to indicate his derived authority. It's not new, but it's an old command. Identical wording to what I already read for us back in 1 John 2. Nothing new. If they were schooled, if these were, if you got Jews who were schooled in the older covenant, who were taught way back in Leviticus 19:18 to love their neighbor as themselves, and in the Shema, repeat constantly, "The Lord our God, the Lord is one," and you should make sure to love God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. How do we love Him? Obedience. 2 John, verse 6. Obedience to His commands. That's how we show His love. Each command is a requirement to show love. His commands aren't divorced from His law. Nor are they separated from uh, truth. Notice how these are not competing realities. They work seamlessly together. Perfect harmony. Truth and love are inseparable in biblical Christianity. Truth guides the exercise of love, and love love must stand the test of truth. For instance, let me illustrate it this way. There was a church I grew up in that followed through in biblical obedience to guard the purity of the church and practice church discipline. Somebody's placed under church discipline, and then all the hunting buddies still got together to do their thing and carried on like nothing had ever changed. No shunning, no no putting out, no serious consequences for sinning against God and covenanting together in the body. Can't fellowship. 
Those that are put out must feel the full weight of their sin and outside the blessing of God from obedience that, that, it, that marks the household of faith. These are not competing realities, but working seamlessly to walk in truth, to walk in love, to walk in obedience. One more footnote here on this beginning. So many people after something new, something novel, like the false teachers that we'll look at next week. It's not a matter of the new, it's a matter of the old. There is no no truth, only old errors. Resurfacing, new face, new name, new garb. Same old doctrinal truths that we need to be faithful to and hold on to. So, beloved, as you think about handles of application to carry this text with you this week, let me submit to you number one, Truth is the necessary condition for fellowship and thus the basis for all hospitality. We're all into hospitality and promoting it from this pulpit as a New Testament reality for the church. It is what, truth is what unites Christians against their common foe of falsehood. What is Newtown Bible Church supposed to be about as a mission? We're truth tellers. We teach God's truth. I'd submit to you number two, we need to make obedience to the truth a habit in life. Think in your life, either today or yesterday, or this past week, if your thinker is not working too well, what are you disobeying? Is your life marked by consistent, regular attendance rather than forsaking the assembly together? Is there an application and ministry of your giftedness to the service in church? Is there a besetting sin which contradicts your profession at work, whether it be your temper or your speech that we talked about in Sunday school this morning or a lack of gentleness or fruit of the Spirit? Make obedience to the truth a habit, a way of life. You... You, you might have an impeccable commitment to the truth, but your love be woefully inadequate. You might be able to win every doctrinal discussion after church today, but you run roughshod in harshness. We must exhibit fidelity to truth which knows no compromise, yet a love for one another which knows no boundaries. Selling out to those that we've covenanted with in service to our King. Number three, let me give you this one in the form of a question. How hospitable are you? Are you actively involved in pursuing relationship and coming alongside other truth practitioners? How are you walking in the truth and love and covenant membership and gospel community at Newtown Bible Church? Consider that. Number four, May I suggest to us to consider love is not afraid of truth but rejoices in it. They are not competing but complementary realities. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, love rejoices in the truth and is modeled by John the Elder, even in his address to Gaius, and he reaches out to Gaius in that next letter, and he says, this one who I love in the truth. 
There's no charade going on. And number five, let me just drop in this promise to take with you. We skipped right over verse three. We read it and we didn't make one single comment on it. Paul used, what Paul would use more of a prayer, a wish, or a desire, John uses here as more of a promise. He tweaks the Greek language to make an emphasis that this is a certain, certain reality, an assurance in promised language. When he says in verse number three, he reaches out to the elect lady and her children, and he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. In the future, these would be yours, your experience as believers, as the beloved, as the elect of God. As you faithfully pursue truth and love in obedience to God's commands, notice the order of blessing that He pronounces. He moves from God's past action of God's grace, His unmerited favor, intervening in our lives when we're on our way straight to hell, out of God's presence for all of eternity, and He set His love upon us. He reached out in grace, which is always prior to their present need. He says, might you know that in ever-increasing measures? Might you know mercy, God's compassionate response in meeting your needs? even as He constantly withholds us from deserved punishment and keeps us safe for eternity. Might you know that mercy and in our future experience of peace, both the emotional and spiritual well-being that to be on our way to heaven is to have everything. Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace which removes the guilt, mercy which removes misery, and peace which expresses a continuance in that grace and mercy. That will be the flourishing environment that we want to foster in truth and love as they prevail in our individual experience and corporately as a church. Would you pray with me? Christ, as we look at you, Through the pages of Scripture, you are the stone which the builders rejected. You are the one who was jeered and mocked and spat upon. The one whom your own hometown rejected. And many still scoff. But you are God and you are God alone. Help us to make much of you, Lord Jesus. To... uh, put you on the pedestal of the church as the head of the church, as we read about you on the pages of Scripture in the gospel accounts, as we study your attributes, might we also be amazed by your grace and teaching, and even ready in our apologetic that we would be those who walk in truth, walk in love, and walk obedience to your commands. Might your Spirit help us in the consistent application of those truths to our lives of godliness should you tarry. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.